Welcome to Of One Heart, the podcast where we learn the life stories of members of the Anacortes Ward family. The mission of this podcast is to help us as Anacortes Ward family members to come to know each other and to connect with each other in richer and more meaningful ways. During the podcast, the hosts will ask questions that allow the individual being interviewed an opportunity to tell their life story. As we come to know each other and as we are willing to be known, our connections to one another will deepen and our shared quest to become of one heart and one mind will be encouraged. These interviews can also be used as a basis to start a life story to be shared with your own posterity. Good evening. Welcome back to our podcast of One Heart, where the Anacortes Ward members share their life stories. I am your host, Brian Murray, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Christine. Hello, Brian. And this evening, we are joined by Norman Landerman and more. Say hi. hi. Good evening. Good try. <laughs> um, we're going to start uh, with a couple of questions about Anacortes specifically before we get into your life story. So I'm going to give you two choices that have to do with your preference in the Anacortes area, and you're going to answer me which one you prefer. So Safeway or the market? Oh, well, Safeway, I guess, is um, favored only because of uh, product and uh, benefits and uh, diversity and pricing. <laughs> okay. Walgreens or Rite Aid? Oh, Walgreens is uh, my my favorite. Okay, Sibos or Ace? Sibos, always Sibos, I guess uh, for the most part. But I do, uh, I believe in supporting all the stores actually. <laughs> 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 but Sibos uh, uh, is good. Um, but <clears throat> it's nice to have competitive stores in a community this small. Yeah, and uh, therefore, I try to shop at all of them. Good, uh, Pizza Factory or Village Pizza. Well, Village Pizza has always been my favorite there. Okay. So, okay. Uh, Donut House or the Grocery Muffins? You know, I've been to Donut House more than Grocery Muffins. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that wins. <laughs> <clears throat> Donut House does it. I think this um, these questions reveal your true personality. Oh, yes, right. Sugar, <laughs> sugar. Right. So we're going to ask um, Norman to start just by talking about his, uh, where he was born and where he grew up and his family and uh, to start telling his story. So go ahead. Well, you know, let's start with the name. Uh, Brian, you did a beautiful job of trying to... <laughs> <laughs> and people get a little uh, exasperated with me when I'm writing a check in the Safeway checkout line, you know, and the, writing this long name. And <clears throat> I, was, um, I was born in a home for unwed mothers. Um, my mom was sequestered um, for about six months during her pregnancy. And uh, I was born there and I was to be given up for adoption. My grandmother, uh, Pearl Robertson, uh, at the last minute uh, stepped in while she was there with my mother during my birthing. And uh, <clears throat> she said, no, she said, uh, this child's coming home with me. And so I was kept in the family. And um, Eleanor Rogerson uh, delivered me. She was one of the first uh, female meta physicians to graduate from Stanford University. And a marvelous woman. 
and I met her later on in life um, when I was discovering my own family, uh, my biological family, and had a nice lunch with her when we were having lunch at her home, beautiful home in Sacramento, California, and uh, she, <laughs> her grandson came in, he was a high school student, and he came in, came home, and she said, oh, Stephen, come and see one of my babies. <laughs> of course, I'm sitting there with white hair, and he's looking at me like, what? <laughs> you know, and so um, I was born at a place called Fairhaven, which was run by the Penile Organization. And during my search for my um, uh, birthing family, uh, my biological family, I learned that Penile operated uh, skid row flop houses and uh, all kinds of things of that nature. And... Um, and it was a long journey. Um, I discovered my true identity uh, in 1988, um, and that was a very long, very arduous process, um, but I was able to do that. And um, met uh, my father's family, and my father had been unfortunately murdered in Portland, Oregon uh, by a... a, a um, well, a, a dock worker, a uh, ruffian uh, sort of fellow, and um, so I never knew him. But uh, I learned more about him than I ever thought possible in his service in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge, uh, working with General Patton's uh, army as a sergeant in a company in the 101st uh, Infantry Regiment. Met the medic, who was his very dear friend, and the medic's dear friend with him, who's a very retired and famous um, doctor from Southern California, Dr. Jack Rabin, uh, who is now 97 years old. And uh, we still talk every week and have a wonderful, wonderful time. He's Jewish and uh, just a lovely fellow and a dear friend. So where does the Landerman come from? Where does the Moore come from? <clears throat> That's the question. Um, when I discovered uh, my biological family, I had a little bit of a dilemma, and that dilemma was created actually by the State Department of the United States, who, when I was to go into Saudi Arabia on special assignment uh, for national security and uh, and uh, with Aramco as my uh, job cover, um, the State Department you know, contacted me, and they said, well, we're sorry, but you don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, really? Uh, well, I served in the United States Marine Corps. I uh, graduated from high school. <laughs> I'm the oldest of nine children. <laughs> I do exist. And they said, no, we need evidence that you do. And my mother had to swear um, before a federal magistrate that I was, in fact, her birth son. And uh, <clears throat> that was very difficult for mom, but uh, she stood and did that. And so when I did discover uh, the Moore family, which is my father is Hope Eugene Moore and his family, uh, I determined that I would go to court and establish a legitimate surname for myself. And so I did. I met with a judge and we had a good conversation and uh, Landerman to honor my mother and her marriage to Robert E. Landerman, her, her husband, who never adopted me, and uh, more uh, in the hyphenated name to recognize and honor uh, my birth family. So, Landerman Moore. 
you go. So were you raised then by your grandmother? Is that what you're I saying? I was. Uh, at first, I was raised by my grandmother and the Robertson family. And uh, someone who was a very dear friend recently told me, you should be Jay Robertson. <laughs> and I'll show you the story on that. Is my grandmother named me Jay. My mother named me Norman. And uh, But the Jay comes from my grandmother's attendance at Rick's Institute, which is now uh, BYU-Idaho. Mm. And Rick's Institute was the first one, and Grandma was one of the first girls to attend classes at Rick's Institute. And she had a crush on a fellow <laughs> whose name was Jay. And so she decided my name should be Jay, but she later on she told me, don't, don't repeat that to Grandpa. <laughs> so, so is that your middle name then? That is my middle name, okay. J-A-Y. So Norman J. Norman J. Landerman Moore. Landerman Moore. Okay. That's, a That's little, a mouthful. Yeah, it is. And... Uh, and I, 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 I try to narrow it down if I can. We just call you Norm. <laughs> NJLM or Norm. <laughs> <laughs> so you were then born in what city? I was born actually in, at Fairhaven in Fair Oaks, which is part of Sacramento County, okay. near the city of Sacramento. Okay. And then how long did you live in that area? Well, I lived in that area with my grandparents for a couple of years. And then my mother came after she married and uh, retrieved me, for which my grandmother was um, regretted uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and my grandmother, because of the fact that I was never adopted, mm-hmm. I think, more than anything else. And, uh, and my mother went to Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, to be with uh, her new husband, who was in the Navy uh, cadet, uh, pilot uh, cadet program. And uh, <clears throat> so I was in Texas, uh, Corpus Christi, for a year and a so, and then back to Northern California. And then by the time, and I asked mom this one time, I said, how many times did we move? <laughs> and because it always seemed like we were in boxes, you know, and uh, she figured it out. She says, well, by the time you were 16, you had moved 22 times. Wow. So that's a military family life. No, it wasn't because he did not stay in the military. Okay. Uh, he went from job to job to job and eventually got his degree and became a school teacher, as did mom. She became a teacher as well. Okay. And um, <clears throat> we lived in various communities. And after World War II, of course, housing was incredibly short. And we lived in, I remember, a place called Hub City which was near Marysville, California, which was really an old army base, a training base that was, the barracks were converted to little tiny apartments. (laughs) And my bedroom was like a closet. (laughs) So no windows or anything, just a bed and a place to sleep. So where in California is Marysville? Marysville is in Northern California, about 70 miles north of Sacramento. And it's in the Northern part of the, uh, up near the foothills. Okay. And you mentioned eight siblings, so your mom and dad had Yes, yes, my mom and dad had eight children, and um, they were all um, one girl, all boys, only one girl, and that's Martha, and uh, Martha was uh, a real, just an incredible sweetheart, and I was big brother, and she was my little sister, and uh, she contracted diphtheria and uh, was not inoculated, and uh, I was with her and cared for her uh, as she was dying, and she passed away at four years old. How, how old were you at the time? I was nine. Okay. Oh. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was this very, very sad time uh, for Martha to pass away. She was beautiful, beautiful, sparkling girl that uh, 
always was sitting on the porch waiting for me to come home, wanting to know everything I did in school that day. <laughs> so that was quite quite something. Now, was this before they had uh, immunizations for diphtheria? Unfortunately, no. The immunizations were available to anybody and everybody for free, and we had an epidemic. We had two epidemics of diphtheria in our country, and uh, that was one of them. And uh, uh, somehow Martha contracted the disease, and... Um, and she was not inoculated, and as I was not either, and uh, the other children were not. Um, Bobby, um, the third born, uh, he was not inoculated. He contracted, but he survived. Uh, but Martha didn't, and uh, she she passed away four years old. Yeah. And were you the oldest of the group? Yes, of I'm. Then? I'm the oldest, and quite different. I'm taller, uh, larger. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of differences, and uh, so I, I really, you know, uh, lived a life of trying to understand um, why I felt uh, a sense of rejection from a person who otherwise to be was to be a father. And I, the contradiction was difficult uh, for me to reconcile. And I, I, I only say that and offer that because of the importance of fathers mm -hmm. and their relationship to their children, um, especially girls, I, I think, more so even than boys. Uh, and um, to be a close uh, friend and to be a mentor and be a support. And uh, But me and my life, I... I didn't have much of that at all. Uh, I was driving a tractor, Caterpillar tractor, when I was five years old, disking fields for alfalfa to grow hay, and alfalfa for hay, uh, five years old. Wow. How did you reach the pedals? I stood up. <laughs> and it was in the desert, and it was 110 degrees, oh, and uh, it was uh, dusty and hot, and uh, that was my job, to, uh, to drive that tractor. At five years old, and then six as well, hmm. and so I learned to work very early. So was it a family farm then? That yeah, you... it was a family farm. It was belonged actually to uh, Robert E. When I refer to Robert E., I'm referring to my mother's husband, uh -huh. uh, my dad, um, <clears throat> and uh, we were there to essentially care for the farm and to. Uh, rent-free to as long as we worked the farm for his brother who owned the land. It was about 160 acres of land, a uh, half mile from the Mexican border. We had a lot of Mexicans come across the border, work all week, go home, and then come back. <laughs> and was this in California? Yeah, El Centro, El Brawley Centro. area, Imperial Valley, right, right down the there border. where it's nice yeah. and Below sea level. Yeah, it's below sea level. So sure. all your brothers were working, it sounds like? Yeah. No, I was the only one, actually, because they were all much they were younger. All younger. Oh. <clears throat> I remember Thinking one time I had been working all day driving that tractor, and Robert E. would yell and scream at me, you know, and, and I was not driving it straight, and <laughs> this and that, and the next thing, and we'd been working all day, and finally we stopped, and the sun was setting, and and uh, we were walking home back to the house, and he was still yelling at me, and I got very angry. And I turned around and hit him, you know. <laughs> and I, I think I hit him a little low <laughs> because he dropped to the ground. And mom came running out and looked at me sort of curiously and then <laughs> went by. But anyway, um, uh, we did not get along too well <laughs> from an early time. 
And what did you grow on the farm? What were you disking the field? Alfalfa, for? flax, those kind of, uh, of okay. um, uh, production uh, crops. Okay. <clears throat> so when you were, say, 10 years old, um, where would we find you on a Saturday? Northern California. We left uh, there. But there was an incident that happened uh, that I'll share. Um, I was I was in a school, one room school, all eight grades, one room. Picture of Washington, picture of Lincoln, a globe, a flag, <laughs> and a big blackboard. And I had been in a spelling bee, and yeah, I was in the first grade. And I'd been in a spelling bee to spell the word garage, and I spelled it wrong. And so my teacher and uh, Miss Shum who I thought was Snow White. I mean, I was just in love with her. I thought she was the prettiest girl ever. And and uh, <clears throat> she uh, had me stay after school and write that word 500 times on that blackbird. Hmm. And I learned how to write the word garage. <laughs> <clears throat> so I walked home. It was about two and a half, three miles uh, to home. And it was getting, you know, late in the afternoon. And I was walking along the road leading to the house, which was about quarter mile long, I suppose. And um, I noticed on the left-hand side, uh, there's a, a, a barrel pit and a bank and then a, a, an old uh, barbed wire fence. And on this fence sat two buzzards. Um, the buzzards were just horrible looking birds, you know, just vultures. They would just, and, I, and I was scared. I was, I was a little scared. And I had some books uh, tied up with a a leather strap in the old-fashioned way that I carried over my shoulders, you know, and I thought, well, I can use these as a weapon if they <laughs> attack me. I came up close to them and got closer, and I walked slower and slower, but they just sat there. They didn't go anywhere. And I stopped, and then all of a sudden, it was as if I was in, like, or feeling like I was in a cocoon of some kind. It was, everything was just so peaceful and a voice um, as a very tender soft uh, gentle voice uh, to my right I remember uh, said Norman um, can you tell by their shadows what they are and I looked on the ground the sun was low enough and I could see the shadows of these vultures and I said yes they're buzzards now look at your own shadow and see if you can tell who you are. And I said I could not. And then that wonderful, beautiful, soft voice said, you must discover who you are. And at that moment, the buzzards flew away, and I walked on home. And that was a special, incredible moment in my life as a six-year-old. You were six at the time. Yeah. So... You kind of went on a quest to find yourself then at, at that point? Well, one does not know how to quest at six <laughs> years old too well. Um, and it wasn't until after the Marine Corps and I was going to college, I entered college, and, uh, and there was a, a girl by the name of um, uh, Sandy Brill. Her father was the vice principal or vice administrator of the uh, college. And uh, she was very interested in genealogy, and I happened to share a little bit of my story that I, I knew I was um, born out of wedlock and that I had a natural family somewhere, and she just was adamant that we should get together and go and try to find my 
my uh, history. And <clears throat> we didn't do it. I, I don't know why, but we didn't do it. She was uh, wanting to go to Sacramento and, uh, and try there. But anyway, um, it wasn't until uh, there were bits of time that I really did try and um, but it didn't work out too well. I couldn't, I, it was dead ends everywhere and there was just blanks. And I didn't realize at the time that my records by the Penile Organization, who I eventually found, were uh, sealed and there was no way that I could ever legally uh, uh, find my identity. And it wasn't until Mary and I were in Naples Island in California and I was I was at a meeting uh, with a client and I was on my way back driving down the freeway and I had this impression come into my mind that I should go and call the city of Pasadena and ask if they have archives on records there. And I thought that's really curious. Why should I call the city of Pasadena? But I did. I followed the prompting and I, I did, we didn't have cell phones then. Or, so I found yeah. a a payphone and I called and they said, yes, we do have a, um, an archive library, but you have to have special permission to go and there's an armed guard and on and on and on. I said, well, I'd really like to go. And to make a long story short, I was guided step by step by step to discover my family uh, through those records. And it's a long story, but... Uh, so you were looking for your father at the time? I was looking for my identity and my father, who my father was. Okay. All I had to go on were the initials H-E. That was it, H-E. And um, to make a long story short, uh, I was talking uh, to a fellow uh, when I found this H.E. Moore, and I found a Nunnally, uh, Nunnally family in Pasadena living at a certain address. And um, that seemed to match up with whatever tidbits of information I had. And um, so I found out that there was, by some more research, I was able to find out that there was a living descendant of this uh, family. And then there was a Jewish family uh, who had also had a meat market in Pasadena. And um, I felt impressed that I should talk to them. And I went to the fellow and he came out of his office. He was a real estate broker and uh, he came out of his office. And uh, I said, I have reason to believe that your father is my father. And then I looked at the guy and he's about five foot four. <laughs> <laughs> And he's Jewish, and, he, <laughs> and we both started laughing, and then we got to talking, and I, I was relating to him what little information I had, and he said, well, you know, I know this guy, and he said, I haven't talked to him for 25 years. He got on the phone, called him, and uh, uh, within a day, uh, I was talking to this woman who had a beautiful Texas accent on the phone, and... Um, she, I, and in Northern California. I didn't know it at the time, but I was talking to my father's oldest sister. Oh. And uh, so then she, re him. she referred me to her sister, whose name is Martha, by the way, mm. uh, nicknamed Sid, in uh, Southern California and uh, near Newport Beach. And 
So I called her, and then after some conversation, I reiterated that same thing. I have reason to believe your husband is my father. And she said, well, honey, let me tell you something. <laughs> my Earl never went anywhere at night without me, and we don't have anything more to talk about. <laughs> and, and about that time, uh, Mary was standing at the door. We were at her home there in Naples, and uh, she was standing at the door, and she said, ask her about H.E. And I said, do you know the initials H-E? And she said, H-E? Well, that's my baby brother, Hope. <laughs> and I knew in an instant. I just knew. I just, I knew. I said, well, that's my daddy. Hmm. And it was. And, and she said, oh, you're the boy. Oh. You're the boy. We've been searching. Their family have been searching Search for it. me yeah. for over 40 years. Oh, my goodness. And by that time, he'd already died? Yes, he okay. had died. As a matter of fact, that manifestation came to me when I was in the Marine Corps. I was okay. on a special assignment. I was in a reconnaissance organization, a sniper. And uh, I was on a special assignment to do some training. And as I left my barracks to go uh, to that assignment, I was overcome by the Spirit. It literally knocked me to the ground. And... I was impressed with the words that your father has died. Hmm. I didn't know who my father was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I thought, this is the strangest thing ever. Wow. And uh, I got up and I walked on, but it, it stuck with me. And it was, as it turned out, when I finally discovered my father's death, uh, it was that happened on the very day that he died. Wow, that's amazing. So go back for a minute. So 10-year-old Norman... What would he be doing on a Saturday afternoon or after uh, school? I built a bicycle. I found a bicycle in parts, uh, in a barn, one piece, under a house, another piece, in a junkyard, another piece, and I built a bicycle. But I didn't want that bicycle to be any bicycle. I wanted that bicycle to sail. I wanted a <laughs> sailboat because at 10 years old, I wanted to sail. Huh. And But we didn't live near water. But I knew that if I could tie a broomstick and a sheet to that bike, I could, All right. I could make a sailboat out of it. And so I finally put the thing together. <laughs> I had to keep pumping up the tires because of the leak. And, and uh, But, boy, there's a nice wind going. And I went sailing down that gravel road and went right through a burrow pit and up <laughs> over a fence. And it knocked me out. And next thing I knew, there was a cow licking my face. <laughs> So you've got the sailing gene, even though I you did, didn't live near I water, did. you wanted to sail. I wanted to sail ever since I was a kid, you know, just a little kid. Did you uh, ride that bike without the sail ever? Uh, yes, I did once in a while, but uh, the bike fell apart. <laughs> it wasn't all that well put together. But uh, yeah, I was doing that kind of stuff and exploring. I, I like to do a lot of exploring and get out. And, and I did. I, I found an old abandoned house, and in it I found a, an original uh, transcript of, um, of uh, the two fellows in Africa, explored Africa. Uh, Livingston, I presume, that guy? Who? Livingston? Livingston, yeah. Stanley Livingston Luke. and... Uh, Stanley and Livingston. Yeah, yeah those yeah. two guys with <laughs> etchings. They had all these etchings, huh. and it was a leather-bound um, thing with... Uh, and then I found an old Bible from 1843 and, uh, in a trunk uh, in an abandoned house. And I sent the Bible because it had a lot of genealogy in it. I sent it to Salt Lake, mm. and they recorded everything there in the Joseph Smith building about it. 
And then, uh, so Seaforth was the name of the family and a long history of them, pioneers to California. So you like to be out exploring and I lo- out doing exploring, things doing things, yeah, okay. outdoors, enjoying nature and, and all of that. And of course, I learned to drive uh, and I wiped out the uh, family mailbox. And uh, <laughs> I, I was 11 years old then. Okay. <laughs> so hi, what about your high school years? Where did you go to high school at? Uh, Oroville High first. I, we lived about 30 miles from the school. We lived in a place called Bald Rock which my mother referred to as Appalachia of the West. <laughs> and uh, in not so kind of way, by the way. Right, but, uh, I understand that. <laughs> but anyway, she was a teacher by then, and it was a one-room school. And uh, and so I would get on the bus early in the morning, and we had a 30-mile trip down, um, down the mountain uh, to school. So I was one of the mountain kids, you know. And um, <clears throat> I went to school there for about a year and a half. And made a lot of wonderful friends, and I still stay in touch with those same friends today. And uh, then um, I was with my grandparents again, living with them at a place called Robinson Corners. They had a farm. Then the floods of 1955 came, 55, 56, uh, that winter, where it rained not 40 days and 40 nights, but close to it. And uh, the entire valley from the foothills of the Sierras clear to the coast range was covered with water. Mm. A lot of people don't remember that. But in 1955, there was a flood. There was a huge, huge flood. And you'd see all kinds of things floating by. My grandparents were on a little bit of a knoll, and so they were out of the water just by inches and for their home. And uh, and so I was with them for a while. Uh, then... Uh, my parents had moved to Chico, which was nearby, and a competitive school with Oroville. They were in, in football and everything. They were very competitive. And so I was the new kid on the block. Of course, you know, the 22 times by the time I was 16, I moved. <laughs> uh, always a new kid, always having to say goodbye to friends, which I hated, really. I, I just, uh, just did not like that at all, having to say goodbye. And but there I was, new kid on the block in Chico, and um, immediately this guy he wanted to come up and punch me out, and, <laughs> uh, you know, in the hallway, and uh, teach me a lesson that. Uh, and he had two or three buddies with him, and um, by then I knew what to do, and I punched him first. <laughs> 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 and all of his buddies said, "Oh wow, you know," and uh, uh, the poor kid. Uh, he had some kind of a plate in his skull because of an accident he had had, and yet he was doing that kind of thing. But he wanted to be good friends after that. <laughs> <laughs> Any activities that you were involved with in high school? Yes, I was involved in football uh, a little bit, uh, offensive end, and uh, I was involved also in track, and I love track. I love um, the 880. Uh, I was no good with the hurdles. I mean... Behind me, if I tried running the hurdles, it looked like a demolition derby. (laughs) (laughs) My legs are too long, and I didn't have the right gait, you know, to do that. Then shot put and javelin. Wow, uh, so all kinds of things. Yeah, I did javelin, shot put, uh, 10-pounder. Yeah. And any opportunity to work while you were in high school? Work? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. When I was 15, I was uh, working in a lumber mill. Okay. Uh, I was uh, working in a very, very big uh, head mill uh, where the logs come in. I started out in the woods, actually, setting chokers. And then this guy 
um, on the tractor. He rolled the tractor and was killed right in front of me. And uh, yeah, and then Ronnie Axe, that's a real name, A-X-E. <laughs> Ronnie Axe, who was a uh, truck driver, uh, he grabbed me and he says, come on. And he said, uh, he took me to Oscar Hedlund's uh, mill, which was the mill that we were operating from the woods. And he said, well, this kid needs a job in the mill, you know. And Oscar came out and he said, how old are you? And I said, 18. He said, well, you're a liar. But he <laughs> said, if you can do the job. Uh, and so I was put to work in the mill as a, a pond monkey. And what that is is you wear hobnail boots and you stand on the log deck with a big pole and you kick logs out for the head rig to go up and... And uh, so um, I was doing that, and I had my pole up there holding on to it, and all of a sudden the pole snapped out of my hand. The log uh, deck started rolling, and I was looking at logs coming down behind me. And so I took off running, and I ran out of logs, and I was running on bark, (laughs) I think. And then I went down in the water, and they came down with these huge hooks, you know, where they lift up the logs out of the pond and bring you up into the head saw. And they took and hung me about 40 feet in the air and then took me over and set me down. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then Oscar Hedlund, he, um, he gave me a different job than that, uh, running the resaw. But I had responsible jobs in the, in the mill yeah. with any man. You're a hard worker. And I learned, uh, I learned uh, to not search for a 12-inch board stretcher. <laughs> and I was sent after that. And a pair of TRWs. Now, that one I could not figure out. Go get a pair of TRWs. Okay, I had pliers in mind. I don't know why I thought pliers. TRWs. And I was going to this guy and the next guy and the next guy. <laughs> Do you have any TRWs? No, nah, no, nah, go over there, you know. And so I go to the next guy. I went clear out to the uh, uh, kiln dry uh, area uh, for the lumber. And then I was walking back across the yard. And here's all these guys standing up there looking at me. <laughs> I said T R double E's, and I spelled it out trees. <laughs> well, get a pair of trees, and I looked up, and they did ha 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 ha. You know? <laughs> so I was learning my lessons as a sixteen-year-old or fifteen-year-old, actually working in the. So they were room. they were teasing you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I worked. I worked in the fields uh, doing uh, uh, strawberries and other things. You know, setting out uh, smoke pots for the. Uh, or the almond orchards, things like that. Now, you'd mentioned that you had kind of a, a spiritual experience when you were six. Um, any other uh, formal uh, church going or any religious upbringing in your house? Well, when we were, uh, when I was very young, uh, the, the church was uh, essentially non-existent where we lived. Uh, so, but we would meet. There were, there were three or four families. And I remember my first memory of church is you meeting in that a, church. Are you meaning the LDS church? Yeah. Oh, so like somewhere in your family, they were actually his, members? his grandma. Yeah, my grandparents. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, my grandparents. Uh, but we uh, we met in a home, and there was a woman I remember and a man. And they both had white hair. I sat on the floor, and the man had a saw, and with a violin bow. <laughs> And she sang, and he would play this song, and she would sing. And we had the sacrament, and we had talks, and that would be it. Uh, And there was no primary mutual or any any other programming uh, uh, going on at all. 
And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I finally, well, no, I take that back. Uh, when we went to Chico, uh, we lived in Chico earlier. I had three buddies. One was a Jew, one was a Catholic, and uh, the other was probably agnostic. But <laughs> we were buddies, and we'd throw dirt clods at each other. But we had a, l a little ward or branch there in Chico, and I had a primary teacher named Kitty. And she was just a wonderful primary teacher. She was a teenager, 18. I didn't know at the time. I thought she, you know, grown woman when I was in the fourth grade. And uh, she taught us a couple of things. But the one thing I do remember that she taught, and she had us polish her shoes, not just the toes or the front, but the heel, and explaining to us how important it was for us to be fully rounded people that people see us not just from the front, but they see us from behind as well, hmm. and to be fully rounded. And I'll never forget that lesson. It was a very practical, beautiful primary lesson huh? when I was in primary. Wow. And uh, and other things we did, you know, for our moms and grandparents and for each other, and a lot of service. And I, when I was in the fourth grade as well, I served in the church cannery, and I wanted to do the canning. And they had the canning machine there for the peaches, you know, and everything come out boiling hot in the peaches. And then you do the, the lid sealing machine. And I was 10. I, I was about 10 years old. And I said, I want to do that. Can I do that? You know, and I kept asking. And finally they said, oh, okay, you can do it, you know. And I did four thousand cans wow. with no mistakes wow and everybody was standing around counting each can i did <laughs> you know, three thousand setting huh? one afternoon or something you did them all at one time yeah i was just sitting there yeah wow. four thousand cans wow. <laughs> i remember everybody was just cheering and going on about it and i was just trying to focus on, and they got me so nervous that i messed up on four thousand and one <laughs> so that so, was it that was that was enough so did both parents attend church then? Yes. Yeah. And they, your siblings? They did. Uh, my siblings attended. Okay. And uh, yeah. Uh, and then when I came home from the Marine Corps, um, I had, um, well, I'd sort of fallen away from the church, uh, you know, when I was in the Marines. And uh, there, was a, there was a Jewish uh, chaplain, you know, after me. All day. He was a rabbi. And he was after me all the time. He said, Landerman, you're one of us. You belong in synagogue. <laughs> and I didn't have the presence of mind to tell him, oh, yeah, I'm from the tribe of Ephraim. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, uh, when I came home uh, and I started going back to church, unfortunately, I found things had changed. Uh, there wasn't the, um, I hate to say this, but there wasn't the, openness, acceptance, and um, camaraderie of youth uh, at that particular time. There was cliquishness. There was, uh, you know, measuring you and uh, observing. Of course, I came back from the Marine Corps, and I'd grown up a lot in the Marine Corps. I was no longer, even though I was young, I was only 20, you know, uh, I... Uh, I'd grown up an awful lot, and I'd seen a lot of the world, and I wanted my religion, and I wanted my feelings of the religion back, but there seemed to be a barrier for people who had served in the military and not served a mission. And that was unfortunate, but that's what I experienced. Hmm. Anyway, um, 
So I always cringed uh, when I was sitting in a meeting and somebody said, how many here served a mission? You know, raise their hand. Finally, I got the presence of mind to go ahead and stand up. <laughs> I just served a little differently. Served differently. Yeah. So let's talk about your Marine Corps service. What made you decide to join the Marine Corps? How old were you? What were the circumstances? To get away at home from home. Okay. And uh, Had you, you know, finished high school by to then? To be bluntly, no. I, I had not quite finished high school. All my buddies were a year or a year and a half older than me. Uh-huh. And we were driving around. We were in uh, Larry Panel's car. You know, he. <laughs> we were driving around. And they said, and they were all going to the Marine Corps. And I was feeling really down because all my buddies were leaving. You know, they were going. And um, and Larry says, I know what, because I did, I didn't have a birth certificate. I had no identity whatsoever, and uh, and I was underage. I was only sixteen. And uh, Larry said, I know what we're going to do. And I said, what? He said, we're going to get you baptized. I said, what do you mean? I'm already baptized. You know, I'm, I'm a Mormon. And he said, no, no. He said, we're going to get you baptized. See that Methodist church right there? And they stopped. And we all got out. Here's five of us, you know. And they pushed me forward to the minister's home, which is next to the building. And knock on the door. And the minister comes to the door. And he said, he wants to be baptized. <laughs> Really, you know, and, and the poor guy, nice-looking fellow, you know, and he really, do you want to be back? Yeah, I guess so, <laughs> you know. And he said, "Well, come in, and well, you know." And he filled out. Now, what was your birth date? And, you know, and so I gave him the wrong birthday. Gave made sure I was seventeen, and um, and then he took me in, sprinkled me, and said a few words, you know, and said, "See you Sunday, yes, sir." <laughs> <laughs> and now you were seventeen. <laughs> yeah, now I was seventeen, so I went back to the recruiting sergeant and said, "Here he is, you know." And seventeen, okay, sign here. So yeah. you used that certificate of baptism. As yes, your... as I did as oh my. Oh my gosh! And then I went home, <coughs> and I mom was sitting there, and I said, "Mom, I'm in the Marine Corps." <laughs> she about passed out. <laughs> My poor mom. Anyway, um, so there I was. And then I had these dog tags on that said Methodist. <laughs> and I kept looking at these dog tags and I said, what if something happens to me? What heaven am I going to? You know, Methodist heaven or, or Mormon heaven, you know? And, and so I, I got hold of my captain and, and, you know, the company. And I said, you know, there's a mistake here. It says Methodist. I'm Latter-day Saint. Oh, we could take care of that. No problem. <laughs> I felt better with my dog tag saying, oh, okay. Latter-day Saint. So you were really 16 at the time. I was 16. And how many years did you serve in the I three years. Marine Corps? Yeah, three and years. And they never caught on to your real age then? The never did. No, no, you, never did. You were tall. You were look, you I was tall. I was capable. I was strong. You know, yeah. I had all that, that capacity. And in fact, they wanted me to re-enlist and in officer school they wanted me to go to officer's candidate school and uh, they tried real hard to get me to go to officer's candidate school but that was just before vietnam and when vietnam happened a little later on i frankly was very thankful the way they were running that war that i was not part of it you know so when you were in the marine corps where were you stationed Camp Pendleton, primarily okay. uh, i went to lebanon with joe arista he was my spotter uh, in recon we were assigned to the uh, 2nd Marine Division uh, out of Virginia, and we went to Lebanon uh, to take care of matters over there uh, when Eisenhower sent us in. Okay. How long were you in Lebanon for? Uh, we were only there a few weeks. Okay. Yeah, in July of 58. 
So it was a conflict uh, that needed to be taken care of, and uh, the president of the United States uh, used the Marine Corps at his discretion to go in and take care of things. So up to that point in your life, you're, what, 19, 20 when you finished the Marine Corps? Yeah, 20 years old. 20 years old. And up to that point, how would you describe your your faith development or your relationship with God? When I was in that age, um, there was a, a number of conflicts going on with me uh, in relationship to identity. And I began to realize how important identity for an individual really is, to know who their parents are. Whenever I'd read, I was born of goodly parents, I'd cringe. Uh, I would think, I was born of goodly grandparents. <laughs> uh, my parents, no, I wasn't necessarily not my fault and, and so i i began to struggle with that and that i it did not diminish my belief in god and jesus and the holy ghost particularly in relationship to guidance uh, and i always felt that there was some kind of spiritual thing going on that i couldn't put my finger on but it was there. It was there, and it was like it was a protectorate. It was like, uh, okay, you're you're struggling with this, but keep going, and eventually. And I kept reflecting back on that uh, experience when I was six years old. You must know who you are, and that one just stuck with me and came back again and again and again. And I began to realize that while I wasn't really active in the church a lot at that, uh, during that brief period after the Marine Corps, um, that there was something happening that I needed to pay attention to in relationship to my own identity and what that might mean in the future. Then I married and um, was sealed in the uh, Los Angeles Temple. And, um, and that marriage eventually ended up in divorce. Uh, but during that period of time, I served in various capacities, including, like I say, branch president uh, of the Portola branch in California. And I had a lot of great spiritual experiences and learned a little bit about leadership because we were a branch out in the boonies. I mean, <laughs> the Reno steak, it was Reno, Nevada steak, and it was a huge steak. But, uh, and I never, except very, very occasionally, ever heard from or talked with state presidency. But I was constantly driving my little Volkswagen bug over to Reno, Nevada, to the bishop's storehouse <laughs> to get things for families. And that, so I learned welfare. I learned um, charity. I learned the importance and value of serving and, and giving and, and helping other people. And we had about 75 people in that branch, and about 45% to 50% were active. And I uh, had good counselors, and I had good people there that uh, we had a little rented building, and we'd set it up, and they'd do other things. We'd clean it up, you know. But uh, then I, I um, there was a, a lot of difficulty as I, I knew that I needed education, and at the point, that point in time, I was not, uh, I didn't fulfill my university um, degree. And you I began didn't even to have your high school degree. I had my high school. I, yeah, I did oh, get it. You did finally I, get I did. it. Well, I was in the Marine Corps. I, I went to night school and, and finished and, okay. and got it. And uh, so, yeah, that was important to me. And then I decided that um, 
I was deciding that I needed education and I was working for Challenge Cream and Butter and I had an accident and I was paralyzed from the waist down. Hmm. So I laid in the hospital counting the little holes in the ceiling <laughs> for weeks. Uh, and then uh, a nurse, unfortunately, lifted me up, uh, checked my dressings without any cautions, and I ended up with staph infection. And that nearly shut me down completely. And then I went into ICU into intensive care for two months. Oh my goodness. And then uh, after that, I came out and I had a big brace on my on me and I was learning to walk again. I, I'll never forget the guys that helped me walk again. We I sat on the edge of the bed, just soaking wet in perspiration. They got me up and they said, okay, we're going to take a step. And so I took my first step. And I sort of got smart eloquently. I said, well, that's good for the first step forward. How about backwards? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and these two girls, you know, they helped me uh, learn to walk again. You were how old at this time? Um, 26. Mm. And so while that's you were shame. there in the hospital, you decided to get an education. That's right. Like. I counted those holes in the ceiling time and time again and plotted out my future. And that's when I did it, when I was laying there flat on my back. And I said, I am not going to go to a wheelchair. I am not, you know, I'm not going to continue this path. And so that was a paradigm shift in my life. And it was a necessary shift. But as a result of that, unfortunately, there were other problems that began to occur. And uh, then uh, my wife at the time and I uh, determined that it would be needed to divorce. And we did. And uh, the ceiling was annulled. And... Uh, how long had you been married for? About almost 10 years. Okay. Yeah. And you have two daughters from that marriage? No. Uh, yes, I do. I have uh, um, Martha, uh, my oldest uh, child, who's just, in fact, she's coming to visit uh, fairly soon. And she's an interior designer and uh, self-employed and does a marvelous job. And then Elizabeth, yeah. Okay. Is uh, Martha named after your little sister, Martha? She is. She's a Martha is named after my little sister. Yep. So where did you decide to go to school at? Well, I had a scholarship to go to Berkeley, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went down, interviewed Berkeley, so to speak, and did not like what I saw. <laughs> oh. And so I had a summer job working with an architect in Sacramento, preceding to my attending university after junior college. I went to a community college first. That's oh. all I could afford. But it was a good, it was a good introduction for me into higher education. I remember taking descriptive geometry and failing the class, getting right back into the class. And then fortunately, uh, Dr. Russell Freemeyer got hold of me and he said, you're struggling, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir, I am. <laughs> and he began to work with me on descriptive geometry. And there's another thing that happened there because I was uncertain of myself in, in college environment. And the reason I was uncertain that I had been told all my life by the man who pretended to be my father that I really didn't amount to anything. Mm. I was illegitimate. And uh, I struggled against that for a very long time. Anyway, um, Russell Freemeyer said, this is what you do. And he began to show me. Descriptive geometry is three-dimensional uh, mathematics, uh, looking at points in space and beginning to think in the third dimension and then calculate in the third dimension. It's a, it's a very interesting and expansive kind of uh, 
of a course of study. And anyway, he worked with me, and all of a sudden, lights and bells went off. Mm. It was not so much that I could master, which I did. I mastered descriptive geometry and pulled an A out of the class. But what happened was I discovered that I could learn. And I could apply learning analytically to develop even higher learning and higher learning. And in other words, the building blocks of the thinking process and the analytical process began to go to work in my head that I could do it. I was not impeded from doing it. There was no dam in front of me. There was no wall. I could do it. And so it just opened up. So the junior college was in Sacramento? Then? Yes, it was in, not in Sacramento. It was in Marysville called, uh, yeah, it was in Marysville. Okay. Yeah, Yuba Junior College. And then from there, I made the decision to go to California Polytechnic University, which was one of the most highly graded uh, accredited universities on the West Coast of the United States for the field of uh, environmental design, architecture, urban planning, and landscape architecture. Is that the one in San Luis Obispo? There's two of them. There's one in Pomona and one in San Luis Obispo. I went to Pomona. Okay. And how did you choose that field? I chose the field because of my sensitivity to design and the environment, living environment, space, nature, and the combination of nature, man, and physical space. Interesting. And so um, I became uh, the uh, representative for the five major universities on the West Coast of the United States for the field and was in the accreditation teams uh, for accreditation of the programs. And mm -hmm. I was um, senior team leader on some very major projects at the university, uh, including one um, which... Uh, dealt with the restoration of sand and gravel pits in the five-county region of Southern California, which is now in the Smithsonian, as well as in uh, universities and uh, governments in Europe and the United States. Uh, mm. that, that book, is, it's a book now on the procedures and the, and the options of how you rehabilitate sand and gravel pits in urban environments. Mm. And you had opportunities to work for, for some other big names over the years. Yes, I have. I have uh, very much so. Um, Howard Hughes, I've mentioned uh, uh, one. Uh, the other is, uh, you know, Ginge Corporation, uh, City Sciences Corporation. I was chief of planning and development for the state of California. Uh, I was involved with Aramco in Saudi Arabia. I was, uh, I had a Pretty interesting career. Then I, I opened my own firm in 1975. It's been long ago. <laughs> anyway, I opened my own firm in 1975 and retired the firm in 2010. Two-story building full of people and uh, including a couple of attorneys. <clears throat> nice people, good people. And I owned the firm. And um, then I had two of the fellows that wanted to... Um, wanted to take the Northern California office because I was going to start a Southern California office. And so uh, they bought me out and uh, bought the Northern California office. And that's when Mary and I met. And uh, so we were married in uh, Catalina Island, actually, in that <laughs> one. And uh, I began to practice in Southern California in, in uh Naples Island, Long Beach, and uh, California. Of course, you're familiar with that. Right? Yes. And uh, 
And uh, I had this impression that now was the time for me to learn how to sail. And <laughs> so I bought a sailboat. Yes. <laughs> and that's like, you know, standing in a cold shower, tearing up $100 bills. <laughs> but anyway, it was a lot of fun. We, we did a lot of sailing. So that was really the first time that you sailed other than on your bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I did have a little few sailing experiences along the way, but uh, they were very small. Some on San Francisco Bay which is tough, you mm. know, sailing. And I learned, I learned sailing actually in the Delta, Northern California, which is heavy winds in the afternoon, mm-hmm. canals, you know, the Delta has these canals. So you're tacking, constantly awesome. tacking. You really learn how to tack a boat. Mm. And um, so I had a few things, but when you own your own boat and then you are out there on the ocean, it's a, it's a whole different world. You know, and it's, it gets quite interesting. But then I sailed across the Northern Pacific twice. I was invited to uh, bring a vessel back from um, from Hawaii, uh, Honolulu, and uh, came back one time. And Mary said, have you had enough yet? And I said, well, it was sort of great, you know. <laughs> and then I was invited again by a very wealthy uh, millionaire fellow who did the development of Waialea in Maui. And Wiley and the golf course and all the homes yeah. and the shopping centers and all that. And Carl Berger. And Carl became a good friend. Uh, drove around in a Rolls Royce and all that. <laughs> but uh, he said, well, he said, I have my sailboat over there, 60-foot um, Morgan, I think. Uh, not, a, not a Morgan, a uh, Mason. 63-foot uh, 60, Mason. And uh, he said, I need a, I need a uh, navigator and a uh, sailor. And he said, can you crew for me and so I did and uh, enjoyed another crossing of the northern Pacific Ocean. Talk about uh, how you met Mary and talk about her a little bit. That's an interesting story. Uh, the uh, Mary um, was with the Irvine Company. I'm just going to turn this thing off. Uh, Mary's with the Irvine Company. Um, Irvine Company is one of the largest real, develop- real estate development companies in the world in Orange County. Very wealthy, very uh, powerful company. She was a senior graphics artist. <clears throat> so I was in my office in Sacramento and uh, minding my own business, doing <laughs> doing what needed to be done. And um, I get a letter, uh, and it's addressed to me, and 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 I open it up, and inside is a resume with a self-addressed stamped envelope with a beautiful, beautiful stamp of a Hawaiian sailboat on it. <laughs> and so I, uh, Janet Oshida, my secretary, and she brought it in, and she said, you might find this interesting because we had been looking for a graphics artist, uh, you know, somebody to handle the graphics end of the firm. And I looked at it, and I looked at her resume, and I said, please call and, and uh, see if... Um, anyway, I hired her. Uh, she took over the graphics and did a beautiful job. And we became acquainted. And um, as we became acquainted more and more, uh, I said, you know, I've got this meeting I have to go to in San Francisco. There's some things going on there that maybe you could help with. And so I took her with me, and we became... We had lunch at Flynn's Landing, I think. And uh, really enjoyed ourselves, and then it developed into a romance, and and there you go. And then we One of those office romances. Yes, it was. <laughs> Marrying and the boss. We kept it very quiet, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, 
we were married on the boat, <laughs> my, mm-hmm. my first boat, in Avalon Harbor of Catalina oh, Island. Catalina. And Fern Whalen was the county uh, clerk who is authorized to perform marriages. We had a few friends, including Mary's mother, and mm-hmm. uh, there, and a few friends on the boat, and that's where we were married. And then we were married, finally, just before she passed away in the Seattle Temple. Well, that was the real marriage. That was the ceiling. Yeah. The ceiling. Yeah, so talk about that just a little bit. Uh, you, you, you took care of her as she kind of declined over the last few years. and Yeah, I... Uh, <clears throat> Mary and I, first and foremost, uh, as husband and wife, were just very, very close friends. Uh, she would never want to be in the forefront. I was gospel doctrine instructor for over nine years in two different wards, and she would always write my lessons. <laughs> she would type them up all the time. She knew the gospel better than I did. And uh, yet she was not a member of the church, um, but she became a member but her decline with with Alzheimer's was so subtle that it was hardly noticeable. Uh, but when one reflects on that, they go back and look at it. They say, okay, there it is. And uh, the when I realized what was happening, and there was a physician, um, Dr. who's in your, your uh, clinic. Um, Dr. Haresh. Rush. When he pronounced the um, the um, diagnosis, um, then that became uh, a signal to me um, because I'd been studying on the possibility of it being Alzheimer's and I'd studied it as best I could, um, that Mary was going to need all of the help that she could possibly use. I became her caregiver, and that went on for three and a half years, uh, four years almost. and became more intense as time went on. And I was with her uh, up to the end. Uh, it was interesting because I'd had very little sleep, and she was in a hospice bed at the foot of my bed, our bed. <coughs> and she was in a hospice bed, and... And she had not talked uh, hardly at all for about five or six days. Um, hospice nurse was there. Hospice doctor was there. Um, and um, I remember I hadn't had much in the way of sleep for two or three days. And I decided I was going to lay down. And I'd given her some morphine. And um, I'd laid down. And her name for me was Landerman. <laughs> that's, that's what she would she'd always say, Landerman. <laughs> and she'd say it in a certain tone sometimes that I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> so, like, Lanneman, behave yourself. Um, <clears throat> so I, uh, I laid down and I went to sleep. And that was about 10 o'clock. And uh, all at once, I heard my name, you know, and I came, I came awake and she was calling my name. And I got up and I went to her and her eyes opened and she looked at me. I went and got some ice water, moistened her lips. And and then I I was with her and I was talking with her and she couldn't talk much. She just watched me and looked at me. And um, anyway, um, the time went on uh, for about an hour and a half or so. 
and then I could tell that she was ready to depart. And um, and she did. Uh, we we looked at each other and both cried. <laughs> and and uh, she knew she was going, and I knew she was going at two ten in the morning on July seventh. Uh, she passed away. And she passed away very pleased, peacefully, and uh, I was holding her hand and her head, um, one hand on her head and one on her hand, and I felt her mortal um, experience expire, and I witnessed her eternal spirit leave. And before she got too sick, she, was, she actually joined the church and got baptized. She did. She came to me one day and she said, <laughs> typical for Mary, she said, I think I would like to be baptized. <laughs> I went into shock, you know, after, after 25, 30, 30 years, or almost 30 years. But anyway. And then you were able to be sealed in the temple too. Yes, uh, we arranged that. Uh, <clears throat> the temple presidency was very accommodating on that. And uh contacted Salt Lake and the First Presidency and um, the authorization for Mary to go ahead and be sealed was given. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, why did you need special authorization? Pardon me? Why did you need special authorization? Because of the timing. Uh, she had not been a member for a year, and uh, usually that's the rule. Right. And so um, and I think it's an important rule, uh, mm -hmm. And but... I began to inquire about it uh, to see if that's a possibility. And of course, as an ordinance worker in the temple, I had access to the temple presidency in, in a very personal way. And, and I spent time in his office to discuss the matter. And he said that yeah. he would get it done. I agree. In her situation, it was a good choice. Yeah. 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 She, uh, she made it through the ordinances well, I think. Uh, one could say, well, did she really understand and all that? Yeah, she did. She knew the gospel inside and out. I'll never forget the the uh, <clears throat> district leader from the missionary full-time elders who was asking her questions. He said, now, do you, do you believe that uh, Joseph Smith was a prophet? And Mary looked at him like... Why are you asking that? Uh, who else could it be is what she said. <laughs> he was foreordained. Oh. <laughs> well, you were very um, tender. I was at the house sometimes. You took very good care of her, and it was um, quite an experience, I'm sure, for both of you, for you to... It was. Uh, I wrote a journal uh, on it. Uh, the journal is uh, printed. I've been requested to publish it for the Alzheimer's Association. Mm. I have not come to that point yet, and I may. Um, there are several physicians who have read it and uh, feel that it should be available to the medical community. Mm. Um, for whatever reason, I think it adds perspective from the caregiver's view yes. as to how to deal with the disease. And frankly, the way we dealt with it was uh, humor. Every <laughs> chance we got, we used humor. Everything we did, uh, everything I did, and and to see her brighten up and to laugh and to feel comfortable was simple humor. Mm -hmm. And I was in the Alzheimer's Association uh, discussion groups, and there was a, a woman there. She was she was just so obsessed with the fact that her father was on the street driving his uh, lawnmower down the street, and she was just you know very upset about that and. 
going on and on and on about her father. What am I going to do? You know, he's driving his his lawnmower down the street. And I said, you know what I'd do? I'd get out in front of him and put my thumb out and ask for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> so at age six, you had an experience where you felt like you needed to find your identity. Yeah. So you're a little past that now, a little past six. Yes, yes. You've lived many years. Um, have you found that identity? I have. And the way I found it, uh, frankly, is uh, manifest in what Mary would call the body count. And the body count is 18,962 of my ancestors documented. And a lot of them have had their temple work done. And not only have I found my identity, um, I dare say that I have discovered, at least in part, was what I was foreordained to do on this planet in this mortal experience. And that is to find a family that belongs to me and I them and have them sealed in the temple. And so there's nearly 19,000 mm. of them that... Um, are on the record. You're welding the links. Yep. That's wonderful. So how would you describe your faith development as an adult? What what influenced that? And Well, you know, one can always look at example, but I and I believe in that. I believe in looking, and we've had some great examples in terms of leadership of the church. Um, I, when I was... Uh, regional director of public affairs for the church. Uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, of course, was just an incredible guy, uh, leader and prophet, and just a, a very human person uh, to work with. Howard Hunter, uh, a lot of people don't really remember him all that well, but I thought he was absolutely fabulous, and, uh, and others. But what it all comes down to is um, a combination of two things to me. One is a sure knowledge of uh, doctrine. The other is a sure understanding of how to listen to the Spirit. And listening to the Spirit, I think, is the, is the um, most important ingredient in our uh, mortal probation. Um, in order to be able to advance effectively uh, in terms of our own spirituality and to recognize the mistakes we make and how they're made and then correct them and then go on. So I think that's really, those two things really play an important part. I would dare say that leadership does play an important part. Um, it has to. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is our leader. And we look to him as a leader, and not only as a savior, but as a leader, as a support, as a, a person who could put his arm around us, look at us in the eye, and, and say, you know, you need to be doing this or that. What's been your favorite church calling? I had so much fun in public affairs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sat on a regional uh, council, uh, and I was out there working with stake presidents uh, 
in all the various stakes uh, of the district. And uh, but that was the fun. I mean, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I must admit, and working with other faiths, uh, civic groups and organizations, people in who we had relationship building projects going with and building bridges of understanding, as they say. Um, but uh, beyond fun, I think the most spiritual development occurred in the 28 years I served in the temple as an ordinance worker and as the shift coordinator, as especially in the living endowment. Uh, I served in the live endowment work uh, for years and um, one of my dear friends who was my assistant when I was shift coordinator is now in the temple presidency, Jeffrey Brown. Uh, fine man, just an incredible guy. And uh, his wife, um, Kathy, who is a matron in the temple. But I I, I think the temple, uh, obviously for many, many reasons, which I would keep very sacred, um, was the the spiritual growth that I really needed. And that's when the sailboat was sold. <laughs> There's hope for me yet. <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, and, and, and the priority became to serve the Lord in his holy house. What do you love most about the Anacortes Ward? Oh, it has a special, a special feeling of, of love and companionship about it that I think is essential to appreciate. Um, the Anacortes Ward has a certain struggle that is a righteous and important struggle uh, in terms of spirituality and uh, solidarity. And yet that struggle is teaching all of us who are members of this ward how to become better people. And I, I don't shirk from that struggle at all, nor do I criticize it. I think it's part of what this ward really needs, in, in my own view, to learn how to be one, learn how to be um, true companions with each other and support each other in in little ways and in big ways. And so I, I, I think that's the feeling I have here uh, that is unique to this ward. Mm -hmm. What were your first impressions when you came to Anacortes for the and first time? What, what, yeah, what year was it that you- 92. Okay. Had you retired then and you came up here? I didn't retire until 2010. Okay, okay, but you, you moved here in 92. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I bought the property. Bought the property in '88, and then built the home. And oh. the home was finally finished in '95. So you were up here a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, we first uh, took a duplex in Olympia, and because I had a lot of dealings with government through my firm oh. and uh, working on economic development in Seattle with the U.S. Department of Commerce, because I was working on projects all over the United States and different parts of the world. Spent a lot of time on airplanes. <laughs> so when you came here for the first time, what was your impression? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I had come over when I was 12 years old with my grandparents from Kennewick, Washington. Really? And Grandpa had a large um, <clears throat> sand and gravel excavation, a heavy construction company in Kennewick, uh, E.A. Robertson Construction. And so we drove over, and I was 
11, 12 years old, I think. And we were driving, not here in Anacortes, but close by for some reason. And I had the feeling that someday I'm going to live there. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so when I was up here working with Skagit County on a particular project, living in Naples, uh, I took the time to discover Anacortes. And as soon as I got here, I began to sense and realize what it was. You know, it was on an island, yet it wasn't an island. I mean, it's separated by a canal. So, yeah, we we can call it an island. (laughs) But it has bridges, thank you. I don't want to be dependent on a ferry. And and so uh, the bridges were important. The place was important. The fact that it has a village, a downtown village, Mm -hmm. that was important to me. The fact that it had medical services serving the islands and consolidated into a very nice, well-patterned uh, uh, group of services was important to me. And the fact that it had easy access to more uh, diversity in close-by urban areas was... was. And then, finally, just the living environment. Mm-hmm. So I, I called one time and I asked the guy, I said, who's the oldest living real estate agent in town? And they said, well, that's old Al Carpenter. He's retired. So I called Al Carpenter. I said, can I take you to lunch? I'd like to talk to you about property. And he said, sure, you know, I'd love to. So I took him to lunch, described me, said, I know just the place for you. Huh. And that's the place that I'm living right now. Wow. <laughs> it was that quick. And that's a beautiful spot you have. There. It is. It's beautiful a lovely spot. Okay, so we're going to conclude here. I'm going to ask you a couple more, just two more big big thought questions. So Sure. <laughs> um President Oaks taught the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. So, Norm, what have you become or what are you becoming? How have you changed over the course of your life? I think first and foremost, um, as a priesthood holder and as a man, as an individual, as a son of our Heavenly Father, it's loyalty to the Lord. Loyalty. Uh, I use that word very strongly. I think the loyalty um, that we can show and feel and live is incredibly important going forward. The other is uh, covenantial living, uh, I'll call it, and uh, learning how our mistakes can, yes, um, uh, causes to have uh, uh, deep and, and disturbing thoughts about the covenants that we've made, and especially if we don't keep them in certain ways, and how to retain those covenants, and focusing our energies on that. And uh, I think finally, uh, I think it all comes back to family. It comes back to a dedication of not only our ancestors, but those that come after us. So the final question has to do with those that come after. If you could send one message 100 years into the, into the future for your posterity to hear, what would it be? For that, I would reach a, a long time back um, to the time of Isaiah, and then I would throw it 100 years in the, into the future if I could. And it's Isaiah 41.10. And it begins with the words, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. I think going forward for those who come after me, 
and those who may see or listen to this podcast, that's one of the most important thoughts to retain in our hearts and in our minds for the days to come. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Sounds like a hymn. It is in the hymn. They adapted it out of Isaiah to the hymn. <laughs> and we sing it. And then it's beautiful. a great hymn. It's a great hymn. It's one of my favorites. But it's the words uh, that mean so much to us, I think, in our day and going forward. Well, thank you very much for spending this time with oh, us. Oh, thank you. Is there anything in your, I know you brought some notes, any little memories or stories that you... No, I just brought this in case I was queried as to what it said. <laughs> you know, I know him. It's okay. like, you know, when, when, I, when I said, well, Bishop, it, it, uh, it looks like you may need to get another historian for the ward. He said, oh, Brother Leonard Moore, you can do both. <laughs> Keep working. <laughs> Keep going. If you can drive a tractor, five, you can do anything. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for being here thank tonight. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank Good. you. Thank you for joining us today on the Of One Heart podcast. We hope you enjoyed getting to know a little better another member of the Anacorus War family. We will be giving everyone the opportunity to be interviewed on the podcast, but if you want to volunteer, please contact Brother or Sister Murray or President Gardner. We may not yet be where we want to be, and we are not now where we will be. I believe the change we seek in ourselves and in the groups we belong to will come less by activism and more by actively trying every day to understand one another. Why? We're building Zion, a people of one heart and one mind.